Attention. It's time to register for Elusian Live 2024, April 7th through 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Illuminate, innovate, inspire, explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. Register now at elive.elusian.com. This conference is going to be epic. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. And I got to tell you guys, not that I'm not excited every time I do this, but I am very excited today for the group of people that we have brought uh, to the microphone today. Uh, what a time to do this as we are in Black History Month. Uh, we are going to have three amazing guests to talk about the work that they are doing. Not one president, two presidents. I don't know what happens when you get multiple presidents on an episode, uh, whether it's smooth sailing or more train wreck, but we're going to find that out today. Maybe maybe a job of a university president is a organized train wreck um, in many respects, right? Because students are always throwing curveballs at you. You always have to be on your toes, and there are always what? There's always student success elements that we have to address. One of those being keeping people in school and um, solidifying the value of post-secondary education, which here at the Edup Experience podcast, I will tell you, um, I do believe, and I know my co-founder Elvin Freitas does too, in a college degree and all that it does for individuals. However you end up getting there, um, there are multiple pathways, but we're going to talk about that uh, as we get into it today. But I want to bring back a uh, former guest, recent guest, and now first-time guest co-host. Uh, she has multiple roles, and it's impossible uh, to read them all off. So I'm just going to read the one, and then she can tell you everything else. Ladies and gentlemen, her name is Dr. Lenita Berger, and she's the president at NAFSA, the Association for International Educators. Lenita, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. And after we interviewed you, you ended up in the Edip Experience Network interviewing for other of our spinoff podcasts. And here you are back again, I think, uh, you know, can't get enough right. of podcasting. Yeah, I'm making the rounds and I love it. Uh, I think you're excited about this episode today, are you not? Oh, yes. Very excited. Okay. Well, we're going to get our guests in now. I know they got a lot to say. We're going to bring in one at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the president of Cal State Dominguez Hills. He is Dr. Thomas Parham. Welcome to the mic. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you, and uh, we'll bring in uh, your colleague as well and just get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the Dr. Luke Wood. He's the president at CSU Sacramento. Welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to just start this out um, uh, really with something really easy, but something that matters a whole lot, which is for each of you just to tell us a little bit about your institution who, what do you do? How do you do it? Who do you serve? Uh, Dr. Parham, we'll go with you first. Glad to. Uh, again, let me say a good day to our listeners and viewers. Uh, I am Dr. Thomas Parham, president of your California State University, Dominguez Hills. We are one of 23 campuses in the California State University system. It is the largest system of public higher education in all of America. Love that we take a backseat to nobody on that. Uh, on our campus. We are a campus right now that uh, about 15,000 
uh, students. Uh, we are a campus that has an 89% demographic for students of color. We are about 67, 68% women. Um, we have six colleges, uh, 80 majors, um, 57 and 23 undergraduate and graduate majors, uh, respectively, even as we are adding two more doctoral programs in uh, education uh, this fall coming up and then applied nursing in another year to go along with our uh, uh, orthotics and prosthetics uh, doctorate. And we pride ourselves on being able to transform lives that ultimately will transform America. Amazing. All right. Well, let's get the uh, same uh, the same uh, update from Dr. Wood. What's going on over at CSU Sacramento? All right. So um, I'm the president of Our Sacramento State, which was founded in 1947. We are uh, in Sacramento. So we oftentimes tell folks that we are the one and only public university in the state capital of the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, we have about 30,000 students, about 23,000 full-time equivalent. We have two very important designations. One, we are a Hispanic serving institution, uh, which is a federal designation, meaning that we have a large population of students who identify as Latinx. We are also an Asian American, Native American Pacific Islander serving institution in Anapizi, which means we have a large population of Asian and Pacific Islander students as well. In addition to that, um, both myself and uh, Dr. Parham represent some of the most important institutions when it comes to serving our Black and African-American students in the system. We have the uh, largest enrollment in terms of headcount of Black and African-American students in all of the 23 CSUs and all and more than all of the UCs except for one. And I know that Dominguez Hills has, a, I think, the highest percentage of, of Black and African-American students. So when you think about um, areas where we're, we're serving and we're trying to do good work for the community, um, you know, we're very proud of both of our institutions. Now, I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Berger because she's got a ton of questions. And I know when it's my time to step back and get out of the way. But I did just as you guys were talking, a special message came in for both of you for the work that you're doing. I want to play for you. Thanks so much for the great work you've been doing. Uh, somebody special just wanted to thank you for that. So, uh, Dr. Berger, over to you. He is on my screensaver, by the way. <laughs> I love that. Thanks. Thanks for passing this over, Joe. Um, I have been so looking forward to this conversation for a number of reasons. Um, one of the big reasons is that I was born in Fontana, California, raised in San Bernardino, California. Surprise. And I got my start in higher education at Cal State San Bernardino. Oh, wow. So I... Once I discovered a university library where I could check out all kinds of books, I never looked back. So the Cal State system has a very special place in my heart for its ability to transform lives. And both of you are doing such great work at your institutions. And I was wondering if you could say more about um, anything that you wanna highlight about how you support black students in particular, since we're having this conversation during Black History Month. I feel as a, as a historian and art historian that the black experience in California is oftentimes overlooked. 
compared to other regions, but it's it's very rich in terms of Black people's contributions to California, the economy, its history and culture, um, and Black students play a very big role in higher education. So could you say anything more about anything that you want to highlight that's going on in your campuses? So I want to start uh, the answer to that query by really talking about uh, uh, Dr. Wood and I understand the difference between a desegregated environment and a truly integrated one. There are a lot of institutions in the country who measure their, their worth, if you will, their, their demographic diversity in DEI by percentage of students. So if you have 5% of this or 10% of that or 15% of the other, we celebrate folk. But what Dr. Luke and I have recognized long before, along with the Cal State system, is that we cannot simply judge our worth by a percentage of people in our midst, but rather what is the quality of the experience that people are having within the institution? And can everybody who represents our demographic see themselves reflected within the fabric of the institution? So it starts fundamentally from there. Secondly, I'll say that in California in particular, California has had a master plan that people think are, you know, needs to be updated. But for me, the core of the plan was anchored in a three-legged stool. The first was excellence in academics and research, which we try to produce. The second was access to California state citizenry and citizens from the nation and really around the world. We have international populations as well. And the third was affordability. And the one that's been the hardest to achieve, I think, has been the affordability measure, even though we are still the most affordable uh, uh, university uh, uh, system, I think, and, and, and campuses, I think, around. But I'll say that relative to, to African-American students where you were going, which is we pride ourselves on being able to provide access. Now, I've been an Ivy League professor before. I spent 33 years after that at the University of California, Irvine. I've been in Research One places where we judge our worth in those places by selectivity ratios. Aren't we wonderful that we only admit the top, you know, four, five, six, eight percent of our, our students? For us, if the master plan set access, then part of what we are trying to do in the California State University system, particularly for students of African descent, is provide them with a level of access to the opportunity. So we've got students on our campuses that are 4.3 students who pass up. UCs and other places to come to Cal States for the quality of the experience. But we've also got 2.5 students trying to be 3.0s, 3.0s trying to be 3.5s, 3.5s trying to be 3.7s going to medical school, dental school, law school, et cetera. So those are the kind of things that we are engaged in. And there's a whole range of both academic and co-curricular learning opportunities that we are proud of, as well as affinity centers that help support not only the demographic uh, space there, but who provide teachable moments for the non-African-American folks so that we're able to dissipate some of the cultural ignorance that is so pronounced in this nation for people who are non-Black. Luke, what would you add to that, brother? Man, I mean, how do you follow anything that you say, brother? <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that, you know, th yeah, those are the those are the things that we're, we're trying to build um, on our campuses for Black students. You know, one thing that I think is also unique about both, both of us is that we're scholars. Um, you know, that that is that's part of our identity. Uh, I see myself as a as a professor and a scholar who happens to be in an administrative role. And my life and career has been focused on studying and understanding the black experience in education. 
And one of the things that, that we know is that whether you're talking about preschool or doctoral level education, that black students are treated by educators inherently differently than other students. Yikes. They're treated through a lens of distrust. They're assumed to, uh, and you see this uh, particularly in like K-12 education with the over-representation of black students in suspensions and expulsions. You see very similar things in higher ed too. And so oftentimes there can be this criminalization, particularly if a black student outperforms low expectations. And that happens in classrooms all the time where sometimes you have educators who don't believe that they are capable, that they bring uh, intelligence to that environment. And so we're oftentimes working to hard to create environments for students in institutions that are oftentimes never designed to serve our, our, our communities. This and is so lunacy. It is. It, it's lunacy. It is um, a challenge. And at the same time, it's a responsibility. So being in these roles, it's what we what we try to do is make sure that we're preparing our educators to do something that many of them have never been trained how to do. So let me let me put that into context. Let's take your average faculty member in a community college or a university across the country. Let's say they are in biology, bachelor's degree in biology, uh, works in industry for a few years, master's, PhD, and they go straight into the classroom with no training on how to teach. So, so what do they do? They think of, okay, what was a good professor I had? Let me try to emulate some of those things. And so we oftentimes find that they teach how they were taught but how they were taught is not how our students learn, particularly our black students and our students of color, because the examples that they were going to be uh, exposed to, the books and literature that they're going to be exposed to, the curriculum, the relational dynamics are ones that are oftentimes reminiscent of a Eurocentric paradigm, which does not support the learning, growth, development, and success of black students. And so part of what we're trying to do is create environments where every educator is prepared to do what we expected them, which is to create an environment where Black students experience dignity um, in the classroom. So yes, our campuses have centers, right, that are designed to serve Black students. We have employee resource groups that are designed to serve Black faculty and staff. We have uh, lots of programs and support services, but we're also doing some things, you know, across our campuses that are unique. One thing that I'd like to share is a new effort that we have here at, at Sacramento State um, that we just announced, and it starts this fall, but we are creating an honors college that is specifically designed to serve Black and African-American students. And we have to say, we have been looking to, to see, does anyone have anything like this out there? Now, there are some honors colleges that have programs and fellowships that serve Black and African-American students, but no one has ever set to create an institution within an institution that's specifically designed to serve this population, and I want, I'm gonna go back to this. Like I said that we had the highest uh, headcount of black students in our system. We do, but you know what? We're also in the bottom third when it comes to student success. And so we have to say to ourselves that 75 years of history getting to this point, to this moment in time has shown that the way that we're doing it is not working. And so that's why we're, we're doing this at Sacramento State. We've set aside 6,000 square feet of space. They have their own uh, seminar rooms. They have their own office space, their own study centers. We have a, a dean of students and seven staff members who are supporting her that's going to be leading this effort. We have set-alone faculty. Students will be in accelerated classes with faculty members who have a demonstrated record of success in teaching and serving Black and African-American students. So we cannot be a historically Black college or university. You know, we weren't founded in, in time to be able to do that but we can create 
a similar experience by creating an institution within the institution that's specifically designed to serve them. And speak on that. And and I want to add, uh, uh, Dr. Berger, before you, you uh, go to your next query, what Dr. Wood and I are really trying to articulate to the audience, even as we remember the words of, of both Asa Hilliard, and I want to get back to the fact that this happens in African History Month as well. Asa Hilliard used to always argue even as he walks with the ancestors now, that there was something wrong with an educational system that leaves our people strangers to themselves, mm -hmm. aliens to their culture, oblivious to their condition, and inhuman to people who would want to oppress them. So part of our challenge is to try to help our students know that they belong to higher education in the first place. Since there's so many people outside in the K-12 world and even the, the community college world, who are somehow not convincing them that somehow they don't belong. So our students arrive and stub a toe or get a D or fail an exam or a test or something, and they start questioning, mm, do I even belong in college? So we've got a, a double burden of not even trying to support their academic dreams and aspirations, but also trying to create the sense of belonging. But the biggest challenge, and I say this as a psychologist who writes the textbooks that people use to teach, African psychology in the country. The biggest challenge we face, you look at the news every night, it'll tell you drugs, gangs, violence, poverty, racism, white supremacy. Those are all formidable obstacles. But hear me well, the biggest challenge we face as a people, Black folk, people of African descent, is not drugs, gangs, violence, poverty, or racism. It is the need for mental liberation. In African History Month, Carter G. Woodson, founder of Negro History Week that we now celebrate in Black History Month, first argued in one of the most important books, I think that you know, people who are serious about working with Black folk need to have this book on their shelf. It's called The Miseducation of the Negro. And I don't think you have to go much past about chapter one, if I remember right, where he argued that if you allow a people to control the way you think, you don't have to assign them to an inferior status. If necessary, they will seek it for themselves. So our jobs, not just for uh, Dr. Wood and I, but all of our colleagues and peers in the CSU system and other places in higher education is to use education that provides a key to unlock the shackles of conceptual incarceration that keep our people locked in the way things have always been instead of the way things might be if we just dreamed about what was possible. And what we're trying to do is unlock their dreams. Brother Langston Hughes reminds us, right, that we should hold fast to dreams for if they die, life is just a broken winged bird that cannot fly. We are in the business of preventing wings from breaking and mending those that do. Victory! So there's so much. There's so much in what both of you have said that is so deep and meaningful for the times we're living in right now. And the reason why it resonates with me so deeply is that my start in higher education was working for NAFIO, a trade association of historically Black. And so that's where I really was steeped in presidential leadership in the Black college um, framework. And I moved from that position to an honors college at a public institution in Virginia. So I saw how the HBCU framework of student success, I went from that to a very exclusive environment. And I knew that we were leaving black students behind. So a lot of my work at George Mason has been to reach out to those students to make sure that they have the academic connections, 
but also to build that HBCU type of experience where you leave no student behind and make sure that we take everyone where they are and get them where they need to be and where they want to be. And so that work, I know you all are steeped in it. It is, it's challenging work. It's painstaking work. It's nights and weekends. It's thinking about someone who's food insecure and making sure that they have something to eat so they can study. It's thinking about the textbooks and whether or not students can access those. It's making sure that people feel empowered um, in their education. So all of what you've said has been has has really resonated with me as an as an educator um, and the the challenges of being in a southern state. Um, I'm far away from home right now um, trying to trying to to do similar work as you. Um, but I, I want to ask you a question because I think you both um, referred to the idea of leadership and representation. Um, and the importance of being a, a Black college president um, right now and setting an example for students and faculty and scholars who are going to look to you um, and think about what pathways might be open to them. Um, how, what, how do you feel right now about um, your roles as presidents and leading institutions in a time where the presidency is is challenging, it's always a challenging job. But right now, in particular, it's even more challenging. Um, so I was wondering if if you could both just talk about what that means for you right now, and and how you're navigating some of those challenges. So let me start with Luke because he's a new kid on the block. So uh, <laughs> I also acknowledge, by the way, Dr. Berger, you've got a great leader yourself, and my good friend Greg Washington, uh, who was a you talking about a bad boy. He is just. Right. Phenomenal. And so but I also understand the challenges of being in a state that's still fighting the Civil War um, and what that represents with that. But anyway, look, go, go for it. Brother. Yeah. So I think one thing um, that's important context is that I attended Sacramento State as an undergraduate. I'm actually um, in a unique position where I have the privilege of serving as the president of my alma mater, which my my. My guess is, and, and and President Dr. Parham would have a better understanding, there's not a lot of folks I would assume in, in our system who, who've had that privilege. And and so I'm also in a unique position in that um, there was, before I came here, a president who was um, Black. And in fact, we had a Black president at Sacramento State in 1972. And think about it, in the 70s, and his name was James Bond. Right. So I can only imagine how that must have been a, a, an interesting response from the campus community um, to have someone like that. And at the same time, when he was president, he moved into his house in the uh, across um, on the American River Drive and had a, a cross burned on his lawn. Right. And so that was his welcome to the Sacramento community. Yikes! And if you think about the the challenges that he had during his presidency and some of the issues that have continued you know when i when i see myself in this role as both an alum of this institution and someone who is trying to continue on that legacy i see it as the, the big responsibility it's a responsibility to our community um and i'm talking about of course the broader sacramento community the broader community of california but in particular a responsibility to the black community to to create an environment where students can experience dignity. Now, uh, Dr. Parham mentioned Asa Hilliard, and Asa Hilliard is one of the, the most, 
I would say influential scholars for me as well. And I think about one of the things that he wrote, he said, after years of doing research focused on black students in education and trying to understand like, what is it that really, you know, helps black students to succeed? He said, I have never encountered any children from any group who are not geniuses. There's no mystery on how to teach them. The first thing you do is treat them like human beings. And the second thing you do is love them. Tell them like it is. So the challenge is that that is not an experience that most black students have because our systems, our policies, our structures are designed to provide the exact opposite experience. And so for me, it's about a responsibility to create an environment where black students experience dignity, where they experience support and where we hold people accountable to that, to understand that that is their responsibility as educators to bring that. And I know that that's a, an ethos that, that I have. I know that's an ethos that I think is shared across many of the institutions in our, in our California State University. And it's even more so important when you recognize like what role does the CSU have? The CSU takes any student from any background who's, who's eligible, oftentimes first-generation, low-income students, students of color, and then we create an experience for them that allows them on the other side of their education to create a better life for themselves and for their families. We are the engine of upward and socioeconomic mobility. So if we don't succeed in that mission in providing students with dignity, then we're not just having an impact on that student, we're having an impact on the state of California. And that's why when I talk to students, I don't see students as numbers. I see them as names and I see them as futures. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. For a third straight year, the EdUp Experience will be recording live at Elusion Live 2024. This year in San Antonio, Texas, April 7th through the 10th, illuminate, innovate, and inspire. That's the framework for the conference. Leaders from institutions around the world will converge at Elusion Live 2024 to discover game-changing technology, share industry insights, and build powerful connections. It's time to explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future-ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. You can register now at elive.elucian.com. Epic. Yeah, that's so uh, that's so important. Um, and no surprise, by the way, in following up on, on Dr. Wood's comment about the social and economic mobility, while you'll find many of our institutions in the top 10 and 20 of most of these social mobility indexes in the country right now. But that's a point of pride for us uh, and similar to what I was talking about earlier. Relative to the leadership, my journey is probably a little different. And so let me, let me add to what my colleague has said. Um, I come to this work, uh, one, with an identity as a servant leader, but also a reluctant leader. Uh, I am doing something I never planned on doing. You can find nobody in my background that ever said Parham planned on being a university president. I didn't. Do it, does any university president think that? Maybe, oh, maybe there's you a have point. a lot of them out there who plan mm -hmm. on wanting to be in that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, develop a track record and a blueprint for how to get to be a university president. There are some that aren't. But for me, I think the reluctant leader understood. I think Andrew Young right, as we think about that one of King's disciples, used to say he was always suspicious of people who sought high leadership positions. 
Because if you really understood what leadership entailed and the enormous responsibility heaped on your shoulders, you'd be a reluctant leader. But in the same way that, that Dr. Wood and I adhere to an African-centered tradition, in African tradition, people can be reluctant leaders as they move to it, but your hesitation has to yield to the uh, intentions of a broader community who understand that it needs the skill and assets that you bring to the space and that the children who we do this for need somebody who can champion you know, and clear the pathway so that we create a better future for tomorrow. So I come to this particular work in, in that particular way. But I also come with a, with a space that uh, as I try to serve my community and the campus and leverage the resources here to make a difference for the folk, not just on the campus and in the surrounding uh, Carson and in LA uh, County community here, but we also come with a mindset of leadership that looks at how to navigate the pathway to productivity and success in ways that don't just uplift our presence as leaders, but rather uplift the communities and the campus and the people who we are sworn to serve. And that to me is what's, what's unique. What's common is that we both come out of the professoriate and uh, that I started as, a, as a, an Ivy League professor as well, uh, shifted to administration, but simply taught every year uh, that I've been there. Uh, I, I'm very critical about the psychological literature as it uh, pertains to people of African descent, as is Dr. Wood about the, the, the literature and education as it pertains to us. So we write even as we've been on administrative tracks because it, it, it's like that grandmama wisdom. My mama told me, she says, son, you should never criticize anything unless you're willing to put something better in its place. Yeah. And I believe I could put something better in this place, which is why I'm writing. I haven't written that much. I only have, well, I don't know, six, seven books and probably, I don't know, 50, 60 journal articles and book chapters or something. But so had I been full-time faculty all in years, you could double or triple that amount. But the important is the depth of your love and the quality of your service to a people. And sometimes the realm of your interventions cross the academic side, cross the clinical side for me as a psychologist, they cross the consulting side, they cross the scholarly side, and they cross, of course, the administrative domain. So I've engaged in all five of those things. The only thing that has changed in all three institutions is the proportion of time I spend in each category, but all of which are designed to try to have the mission. My job is not just to be a psychologist or a president, but to be a healer. My job is to be a healing presence in the lives of the people who I touch, either through my words, through my administrative policies, or through my postures or the principles that I try to articulate as we serve as presidents of our institutions in the CSU, with an awful lot of support, by the way, from my chancellor, from our board of trustees. So we are blessed, not just in California, but we have a phenomenal board of trustees who care very deeply about the work, who are very invested in making sure that we support the students that we are, are uh, represent the demographics that, that we have. And that makes it much easier to serve as a president because we don't have to go to work looking over our shoulder every day like, mm, do I have to watch my back like you do in some states? And, yeah. and part of the assault on the presidency this year is not whether presidents know what the right thing to do is because frequently there's a incongruence between you know what you know is the right thing to do and what the external pressures are forcing you to have to do. 
but you've got to be able to decide what are you prepared to sacrifice? And that's the ultimate question we have to do. I've always been clear, as I argue in my own scholarly writings, that the central question, particularly for Dr. Luke and I as men of African descent or even women of African descent, is how do you maintain a sense of your own cultural integrity in a world that doesn't support or affirm your humanity as a person of African descent? But I remind myself, even with the challenges we have to do, on this end of my wall, I keep Brother King and Malcolm. On that end of my wall, I keep a picture of the ancestors in the slave dungeons in Elmina and Cape Coast and Ghana, because it always reminds me to contextualize struggle. So if all I got to do is deal with a little inconvenience of some faculty that kind of hoorah on you everywhere, well, that's, that's you know inconvenient compared to what it is they had to go through. So if they could get through a slave ship, you mean we can't get through this? We always come, Dr. Luke and I, and I know his heart, which is why I'm so delighted that he's now president of, 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 uh, of Sac State. But we always come with a heart that fulfills that notion that Franz Fanon talked about when Fanon said that each generation out of relative obscurity must reach out and seek to fulfill its legacy over trade. We come every day waking up trying to fulfill a legacy that he and I had been blessed to inherit along with our um, uh, 21 other colleagues in the CSU system. Wow, I love I love what you said, what both of you have said. And I wanna draw on one thing that you've both referenced, which is um, um, a, a, a connection to the African continent, um, a, de a dedication to Afrocentric values. And I wanna put my NAFSA hat on for a second um, because I lead 10,000 international educators and I'm blessed to be in this position where I am coming from African-American studies and also talking about international education. I got into study abroad um, as a young person. Um, I studied abroad in Paris and while I was there, I had the opportunity to understand what James Baldwin went through, you know, why, why he was traveling overseas to escape the yoke of segregation and Jim Crow and how liberating it was to, to leave that for a little while. And I'm curious to know, because you've both mentioned um, Africa, how, um, how important is it for young students, black students in particular, to go to Africa, um, if they don't make it to Africa, to go to other countries and to have that experience outside of the United States. Um, do any, do either of you um, help um, on your campuses with, with international education efforts or how do, you, how do you view the importance of actually going overseas as part of that um, effort to help students really understand where they came from and to appreciate those values? Yeah, I, I can answer that uh, quickly. We we certainly on our campus um, have efforts to bring students to uh, different parts of Africa. Um, in fact, we had a, a group that went this summer to um, Kemet, and that was a very powerful experience for, for the for the students that were part of that. Um, I myself uh, um, have been to 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 the continent, uh, specifically to Nigeria, and to um, and had the the, pre the pleasure and very powerful experience of going to where uh, the location of where my ancestors came from and being able to um, be there to breathe the air and to have a moment in time where I, where I could just feel um, this, this, this very powerful sense that there was someone smiling from my, from my history that we finally made it home. 
Um, I think that that's a powerful experience that every every student should have. And I think being able to understand, you know, where you come from, it's hard to understand yourself as an African person in the United States if you've never been to to where you're from. And so I do think that that is an important part of the journey for for a number of people. Yeah, I would echo uh, what what President Wood said that. Um, for me, I think we do engage in international education and there's a level of reciprocity that not only seeks to visit other nations around the globe, but also invite other uh, institutions around the globe to be able to come in. So we just entertained a group of, of colleagues from, uh, and I'm trying to think of how many African continents, uh, I'm sorry, African countries uh, that were here uh, on campus at Dominguez Hills. We also are blessed on this campus with several things. We have just stood up the Black Women's Empowerment um, uh, Summit. We also have the uh, Merv Nimely Institute, who is named after the only Afro-Caribbean brother to serve as Lieutenant Governor in the state of California, along with being a Congressman and Assemblyman and a, and a state Senator. So with the Dimley Institute, it's run by a brother, uh, Dr. Anthony Samad, uh, who along with the Nymaly Fellows uh, and other students, as well as students, even from some of our local community colleges has begun, in fact, with Dr. Gamage, who works with them, to take those students on international trips. So two years ago, we were in Ghana. Uh, last year, they were in uh, South Africa. And so it is important to be able to do that. Uh, like Dr. Wood, I myself have been to the continent, uh, not enough, but twice. Um, my first trip uh, to Ghana uh, was in uh, Y2K in the year 2000 uh, for national international convention of the Association of Black Psychologists. So in that respect, through all the decade of the 90s, we retraced the steps of the Underground Railroad with our annual conventions, starting in Toronto and finishing in Charleston, which, as you remember, was the largest uh, slave port where they were importing slaves uh, from around the world with two deviations. One was LA, which was my convention, and the other was Chicago, to align with the Black Congress on Health, Law, and Economics, where all the Black organizations get together in an election year to be able to do that. But when we went to Ghana, I mean, when I got down off the plane and walked down onto the tarmac, I knelt down and just kissed the ground because it was home. But mm -hmm. when we went into those slave dungeons of Elmine and Cape Coast, what the psychologists did is we performed some ritual, and we actually took bottles of rum which were, where, as you know, was one of the commodities traded for the slaves and other folk. And we broke them against the wall, right, as ritual. But we also told the folk that the people lied because when we stood next to the door of no return and they said, your children would never be home, we told them you lied because your children are home and we are actually doing okay. And we want you to know that we are doing fine. And so we were in those particular spaces. But my second visit uh, to Africa, um, actually was actually was my first visit to Africa, was uh, to Kemet, uh, to the cradle of civilization, uh, what people call Egypt, uh, with the great Asa Hilliard, uh, who was a good friend of mine. Uh, but there is nothing more fabulous I've seen in my life next to the birth of my child. Watching her come into the world is the most fabulous thing I've ever seen. Next to that, to bear witness to the genius of those African people so as I've gone from Cairo to Luxor to Aswan to Abu Simbel, which is about 25 kilometers above the Sudanese border and all the temples and, and tombs in between, 
you can just bear witness to the genius of African folk. If I had Dr. Berger, a MacArthur Genius Grant, which I've never been blessed with, I would take most of that prize money and I would get a group of students, put them on a plane, and I'd invite every student I could who was black to go to Africa. Because once you go inside those slave dungeons and you visit and you just commune with the spirits that are still there and you can just feel the spirits, you could never come back home and engage in some of the foolishness we engage in, right, as a people on the streets. And I'm talking about the illiteracy, not taking education seriously, engaging in violence, et cetera, um, um, violence in communities and families, et cetera. You could never engage in some of that, the neglect we, we take in terms of our health, because once you know what it took for us to get to these places, you have to be able to honor the sacrifice and the struggle. So in answer to your question, it is very important for us to do that. And we will continue to want to do that and do it collaboratively across institutional boundaries. Dr. Parham, if you get that genius grant, I'm coming with you and we're taking all the students out there. Joe, do you have any questions? I've yeah, been I do. I do. But they're not going to be as good as yours. Let's just be honest. I, I do um, some perspective. I've interviewed, I don't know how many presidents, um, uh, black presidents from HBCUs, um, men, women, at public, private institutions. And one fact um, is pretty standard throughout institutions right now, and that is there are not as many black men enrolling into college as there were previously, pre-pandemic. That is something that is being brought up, no matter institutional type, that the black man is not going to college for whatever reasons. What is, you guys have obviously a really unique take here for a multitude of reasons, but what, what's your take on what's happening uh, with black men entering college, staying in college, completing college? What, what can be done? And I know you both came up with the 13 solutions for black students, uh, for black student success. So I want, if you could tie in that, that'd be great. So I'm going to proudly uh, flow off the, the report that we spent lots of time. I was blessed to, to co-chair that, but real briefly, because I want uh, uh, Dr. Wood to wax and wane on this as well. Um, the pipeline starts early on in, in, in the kindergarten and first grade through third. And what is true is that our women are outperforming our men uh, exponentially. Uh, if Dr. Wood and I admit 100 students in a freshman class that are Black or a transfer class, I guarantee you probably 60 to 75 of them will be women and 25 of them being men. I mean, they're outperforming them in, in that way. Um, I always hesitate as a scholar to think about assuming that you can ever define a single variable that accounts for 100% of the variance and explaining any equation. It's always multiple slices to the pie, Joe. And one of those slices is the start they get in home. Mm -hmm. One of those slices is the schools that they are exposed to. And as Dr. Wood said, the teachers who, one, aren't equipped to be able to teach these black kids, including males, who end up being very intimidating for these teachers, most of which, by the way, are female teachers who aren't equipped to, in some cases, to know how to work with these young black kids. And I've had some of the best female teachers around. It isn't just the femininity that's there. It's the skill and the competence that they have to be able to do that and the lack of understanding about the cultural congruence that I think that is important there. I think another slice is has to be related to the students themselves and to the family structure in that. There's an old adage in the Black community 
that talks about we raise our daughters and love our sons. School ends at 2.30, daughter better be home 2.45, getting homework done, getting whatever. On Saturday, up with mom doing chores, Sunday in church with mom sitting in. I mean, there's a level of discipline that we engage with our women and our young girls that we don't engage in with our boys. School ends 2.30, boy might get home 5 o'clock. If dinner's already been done, they will reheat dinner for young brother when he arrives. Saturday morning, he's on the street looking for a peer group who's playing some kind of athletic competition. Sunday, sitting on the couch with dad, you know, not in church. I mean, we raise our daughters and we love our sons. And that's one of the slices to the pie. In addition to the structural barriers that are put in place for folks to do that, because the assault on black men, whether it's crime in the streets from gangs, whether it's police who engage that, it's just, it's a different experience for being a black man. All those things have, I think, a part to play in why you see some of the phenomena you do and why some of the programmatic initiatives that we are engaged in are trying to address some of those critical issues. And and how I would respond to that is, is very similar. I, I really think that when we talk, we, we can't talk about black college students without talking about what it's like to be a, a black male in preschool. Right. Um, and so a lot of what my research as, as a scholar has focused on is the overrepresentation of, of black students in what's called exclusionary discipline. So suspensions, expulsions, loss of recess, not being able to participate in after school activities, all the full range and what is done to strip black students of, of a desire to be in, in an academic environment. Mm. And you know, the highest suspensions that we, we know in terms of suspension rates are in middle school, but the highest disparity between Black students and their peers is not in high school or middle school or even in latter elementary. It's actually in early childhood education. In California, Black boys in kindergarten through third grade are 550% more likely to be suspended than their peers. So the earliest levels of education, you're being treated through a lens of distrust, disdain, and disregard. You're being taught by educators who oftentimes don't believe that you're intelligent or capable and who talk about uh, students with the they statements. They're lazy. They don't care. They're not really here for school. They're only here for sports. And so the we have to think about the socialization that happens in our educational system that then by the time we get students at the college level, why would they feel like college is a good place for them? Because everything that they've experienced up until that point has shown them that it's not environment for them. And in fact, uh, Martin Luther King, he uh, came and he spoke uh, on campus here at Sacramento State six months before he passed. And he talked about what he's called uh, the spiritual psychological violence that takes place in education uh, towards Black people based upon the, the level of mistreatment, the lack of quality of, of in terms of the experience in which they're provided. And so when I think about what are the biggest issues facing Black student enrollment and success, in my mind, I never look at students and blame their families and blame their communities and say it has anything to do with them That because that's like looking out the window into someone else's life and someone else's culture and situating the onus of that responsibility on them. Instead, I say as educators, we have to look into the mirror and see our frailties and what we're doing or not doing that's resulting in the outcome disparities that we see. And that's why this report that both uh, that you know Dr. Parham was the, was the chair of. I was one of the members um, who were part of this. It's called Advancing Black Student Success and Elevating Black Excellence in the CSU. It's a call to action. It was part of the Black Student Success Report. It was a statewide group of folks who came together 
to understand what is going on with the black student experience. Why are we facing issues in terms of enrollment? Why are we facing issues in terms of student success? And we did interviews, we did focus groups, we did a, a litany of different things to collect data from students, from faculty, from staff, from administrators. And we came up with a number of recommendations that we know will have an impact and that are being implemented across our system right now, focused on, on black students. And we're very fortunate that our chancellor's office has set aside monies, not just to say, hey, this is important, but to actually put some, some resources behind the effort to make sure that we can actually create a better environment for students. So if you look at a lot of the recommendations, one of the things that you'll see is a lot of them deal with having a plan, right? You got to have a plan for enrollment. You have to have a plan for retention. You have to have a plan for, for engaging students, right? You, you have to have a plan for those things. And it kind of goes back to the old uh, you know, Bible verse, which is where there is no vision, the people perish. So if we don't have an idea of where we're trying to go. We can never get done with the things that need to be done. Beyond that, though, it talks about how we create an environment that creates a sense of belonging. Too often, our students, they feel like they're a guest in someone else's house and they don't feel like it's their home. And, you know, Caroline Turner and her work on students of color in higher education talks about this, where the environments that we go into, the sites, the building names, the uh, images that are on the walls, the paintings, the sculptures are representative of someone else's culture and someone else's community. And so you feel like you're a guest in someone else's house. And so part of the things that we're trying to do as a system is think about what can we do to make it so that students know that they're at home and that they're in an environment that cares about them. And part of that goes back to an earlier conversation we had around representation, right? So we're two uh, individuals who are, are fortunate to be in positions where we can help steward institutions into a better future. But we're also, even if we teach a class here and there, we're not the primary focus in folks in the classroom doing that day-to-day -day work that 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 students need. And so we have to create an environment where students are able to see some point at some time, someone who looks like them, who comes from their community and who has a demonstrated record of success in either research, teaching or serving black students. And so the report provides a number of different recommendations that's helping us get to that point, recognizing that our past has not been what it should be. So our future has to be different because our history as a, as a system has shown that for many of us, what we're doing is not working. And so we have a this report. I see it as it's a it is a call to action. And I think we're we're so blessed that Dr. Parham and and Dr. Uh, Saul uh, Jimenez Sandoval uh, served as as the leads for this effort because I think it's really serving as a good roadmap for where we need to be. Yeah, and I think we want to we want to add to that. I think uh, uh, though for the question that while we are absolutely proud of the report and. Um, the blueprint really that it provides, not simply for these 23 campuses of the CSU, but I think for systems around the nation, there are a lot of people who are retreating from these efforts to try to embrace and support students of African descent. And we want them to do is to lean in, as Cheryl Sandberg was saying, and really embrace it. But there are a couple of things that are important here. This effort to support black students for the CSU is not new. I don't want us to get this twisted. So I want to say this clearly. The California State University system has always been interested in supporting black students. But as it takes an opportunity for what we call a, a, a Sankofa moment, if you will, you know, the Sankofa bird who always looks back and right, go back and fetch. The goal with Sankofa is to always look back and try to assess because in the human condition, you both know that there's always a, a gap between 
the aspirational self that aspires to do these things and the real self that says this is the reality on the ground. What this report represented was a look at that where we were able to point out the profound incongruence between the aspiration and what we preach, but what was actually happening. And so the 13 recommendations, see the symbolism here because they correspond to the 13th Amendment right, of the Constitution. So the 13 is not accidental, represent a connectedness because the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone here between students, faculty, staff, right, administration, and climate. Five elements that get addressed in here that take a comprehensive look at how to elevate Black excellence within the California State University system and among other people. And that piece, I think, is so important to remember as we move forward with some of these specific uh, initiatives. But fundamentally, we also right, want to provide a lesson. There's a content domain on a process dynamic. So in the process dynamic, one of the things I argued uh, uh, on the committee and was supported by my colleagues, I'm like, look, we cannot design interventions that came out of the, this committee was started out of the Juneteenth Symposium that happened that I uh, hosted in uh, uh, June of 22, that actually now the 24 version is gonna be hosted by Dr. Wood, by the way, so I'm looking forward to that uh, and, and what he and his team will bring. But this committee was stood up by then Chancellor Jolene Kester to say, I wanna see some progress on this. And so we worked for the better part of four, five, six months with uh, Dr. Dilsey Perez and others and a whole range of people from around the system on this particular report. So it's a lot of work. My point was that we argued that you cannot design interventions in absence of consultation with the people that the intervention was designed to serve. So those focus groups that Dr. Wood was talking about where we went and met with students all up and down the system and had focus groups. We met with faculty. We met with staff. What are your issues? What are you loving about what you're experiencing? We need to replicate. What do you need to change? It's just like making you crazy. And so we incorporated all that and then tried to use that into the plan. And that's what you see, I think, within the report. But also importantly, there is a system of accountability that has been put in. Hear me well on this one. In all the diversity efforts that we engage in, I think there are three critical ingredients. You have to have a cognitive, emotional, behavioral and even spiritual pledge to support. Someone has to say, this stuff is important. That's what the trustees have done, the presidents have done, and now campuses have done. You have to have sound programmatic planning, which are the recommendations that are in this report. But third, you have to have some sense of accountability. The single most important ingredient missing from a lot of our DEIJ efforts across the country is accountability because nobody's held accountable for missing diversity metrics if I come in $100,000 over budget, my job is on the line. But if I miss a diversity target, mm, who matters? Well, yeah. part of what we also did and I helped design is a metric where we are now incorporating progress on these 13 items into president performance evaluations. So each president is now about to be graded on how well we have met our metrics. Now, we don't have to be good at all 13, Dr. Wood may have an affinity center, but not have, you know, this kind of program for staff, or he has an honors college, but I don't. Whatever you want to do within the 13, each president and campus was designed to say, pick two or three or four that you want to focus on in this next year and a half. And we've all submitted those pieces, and those are the things that will be judged on. And so that's why I say it's an important blueprint for other folk. But again, I want to, uh, in this uh, uh, comment where I started, 
I don't want us to get it twisted that somehow this is new for the CSU. It is a historic effort. They've never done something like this. So I'm glad that they supported our leadership, but they've always been concerned about black students in the system, but have never done it in the way we've just articulated it between Dr. Luke and I and the other members of the committee. Well, speaking of accountability, I think it was somebody from Dr. Woodstaff that said they were going to fly to St. Louis and turn off my mic if I, I got you guys out uh, after that. Somebody had a hard stop. So I, I, I want to respect everybody's time. I, I will let I will just go about my day working and leave the three of you on to discuss. That's how good this conversation has been. You guys want to keep going. You can. Um, but uh, I think what you've done is outline some of the barriers that we have to continue to work through when it comes to higher education, what it takes to be an effective leader in higher education. Everything comes back around to student success or none of us have jobs in higher education. We have to retain the students that come into our systems and get them out to uh, gainful employment one way or the other. I would thank my guest co-host, Dr. Lenitra Berger, for asking way better questions than I could have ever done. Uh, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure to, to speak with both of you. And I just want to give a quick shout out to our president, Dr. Greg Washington. My friend, please give him my best. Well, gentlemen, love there that. There you person. go. Doctors Parham and Wood, presidents of Cal State Dominguez Hills and CSU Sacramento, respectively. Gentlemen, thank you for being on this podcast. Uh, thank you very much for uh, the insights that you provided and the expertise you brought to the table. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just add up. Attention. It's time to register for Elusian Live 2024, April 7th through 10th in San Antonio, Texas. Illuminate, innovate, inspire. Explore higher education's greatest opportunities with future-ready ideas, solutions, and best practices designed to drive transformation. Register now at elive.elusian.com. This conference is going to be epic.